Let's turn to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. We uh, studied last time we were here in, in verses 1 through 14. And uh, now we pick up in verse 15. And as we continue on in the messages that God is giving not only to Judah and Jerusalem and the people of Judah, but also to the Gentile nations as this next section is focusing upon. Verse 15 says, For thus says the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand, and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. And then I took the cup from the Lord's hand, and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and its princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing and a curse as it is this day. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes and all his people, all the mixed multitude, all the kings of the land of Uz, all the kings of the land of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron and the remnant of Ashdod. Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of Sidon, and the kings of the coastlands which are across the sea, Dedan, Tema, Buz, and all who are in the farthest corners, all the kings of Arabia, and all the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in the desert, all the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of the Medes. All the kings of the north, far and near, one with another, and all the kingdoms of the world which are on the face of the earth, also the king of Sheshach shall drink after them. At the onset of this chapter, which reveals Judah's captivity, and and not only its captivity, but how long they're going to be in captivity, which would be 70 years, The prophet Jeremiah is given two messages to present. The first, of course, was to Judah, to Jerusalem and their inhabitants. A message that we found in the first 14 verses. A message that had been given in one shape or form over a period of 23 years in the ministry that Jeremiah had to the people. And because of their sins of idolatry and rebellion and and disobedience, Judah would face that 70 years of Babylonian captivity and exile for their disobedience and their disregard for God's word. It was a message, it was a message of, ch- of chastening and chastisement. We ended last time with the thought that Daniel was guided by the prophecies of Jeremiah, recognizing that the captivity was coming to an end and preparing his own heart to seek what God wanted his people to do before they returned home. Reading not only the words of God, but believing them and applying them to his life. And I believe that's a running message throughout the scriptures. It is a message that says, here is God's word, believe it, trust it, and apply it. Believe it, trust it, apply it in your life. Too often we find ourselves getting to the stage of saying we believe it, but not applying it to our lives. And there are times when we say that we love the Lord and trust the Lord, but we don't show it in our lives. And so I think that even in in this particular case where Daniel has taken the, the prophecy of Jeremiah and he's read it, He not only read it to say, wow, this is true. He read it and he began to apply it to his life. We talked a little bit about that last time. The second message is the subject of our study tonight. It is that word that was given to the Gentile nations. It was was a message of judgment and retribution for their treatment of his people, of which we are given a prelude in verses 12 uh, through 14. So let's read back a little bit here to verse 12 in Jeremiah 25. We covered this just a little bit in our, in our study last time, but it says, Then it will come to pass, 
when 70 years are completed, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord. And I will make it a perpetual desolation. So I will bring on that land all my words which I have pronounced against it, all that is written in this book which Jeremiah has prophesied concerning all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall be served by them also. And I will repay them according to their deeds and according to the works of their own hands. So what needs to be understood in this is that Babylon will first of all be the target of, of God's retribution because of the way they mistreated his own people. But in effect, in a general sense, God is going to attack and, 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 and punish Babylon just for the very cruelness of their own uh, actions against all the nations that they conquered. Now, those nations as well would show the same kind of attitude toward Israel and toward Judah. So they will be punished for the way that they are treated or the way that they've treated Israel. But that doesn't mean that Israel goes unscathed because that's all we've been talking about is that God's people who have his word, who have the privilege of his word, who have the privilege of his presence are the ones who have forsaken that. And God says, I'm going to get you first and I'm going to and I'm going to test you first and I'm going to judge you first and I'm going to uh, chasten you first. And of course, that's what this whole book of Jeremiah really is about. And that's what the prophets are all about. The prophets who prophesied for Judah, the prophets who prophesied for Israel, the northern kingdoms that disobeyed God first, the kingdoms that, that did not have uh, any good kings whatsoever. In other words, the northern kingdoms of Israel, all of them forsook God, forsook the word of God. There wasn't one good king among them. And so God put them into Assyrian captivity many years before this. Judah should have learned their lesson, didn't do it, and so now they're facing this particular captivity as well. So I'm just kind of bringing you all up to, work, up to speed to where we are. But it is at this point uh, that the Lord commands Jeremiah to take a cup from his hand. And I want you to notice, I want you to notice, what we see Jeremiah doing. It's almost as if it's in a vision, but it, it, we'll, we'll see how we work through what, what uh, God is doing with Jeremiah. He commands Jeremiah to take a cup from his hand. This is figurative. A cup that represents God's fury and wrath. To cause all the nations to drink from it. So let's look at verses 15 and 16 now. And it says, For thus saith the Lord God of Israel to me, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand, and cause all the nations... To whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Isn't that an interesting thing? It's talking about a cup that has fury and wrath. They're supposed to be made to drink this. And in drinking this cup, they're, they're going to show all the signs of inebriation. Some of us had a lot of practice in that before we came to Christ. So this may be familiar. I don't want to dwell on it, but I just want you to know that we may be familiar with what this is taking place, you know. They'll drink, they'll stagger, and then they go mad. That's, that's really going to town with all of that stuff. But the idea here is that the going mad part has to do with how they enter into all types of wars amongst themselves. And Jerusalem and Judah and Israel are, are no exceptions here. So, Jeremiah was not only sent to the people of Judah, as we've already seen, but if you remember, he was also to be a prophet to the nations. Remember from our earliest studies in the book of Jeremiah, that, that he was called to be a prophet not only to Israel, but to the nations. Jeremiah 1 verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. So this is, a, this is a point of remembrance for us. Jeremiah didn't come just to encourage and to exhort and to admonish Judah. He came with a message for the nations. Verse 10 of, of Jeremiah chapter 1. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. This is what we're seeing take place with this cup today. 
And though the Lord had not given His law to the Gentile nations, nor had entered into any covenantal relationship with them, God never did this with the other nations, He only did it with Israel. He nonetheless held them accountable for their sins. He held all the nations accountable for their sins. He holds all men accountable for their sins. Whether believers or not, all men will be accountable for their sins. We can read the book of Amos. This is your homework, as a matter of fact, for this week. Read Amos chapter Amos chapters 1 and 2. And by the way, later on we'll, we'll touch on, on chapter 3 as well. But, but read Amos chapters 1 and 2. He begins immediately as, as a prophet bringing a, a, a message to the nations. And if you want to get it more close to home, read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following, all the way to the end of that chapter. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Where the, where the scripture begins, you know, for the wrath of God will come from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men who suppress the truth, the truth and unrighteousness. That's New Testament. So Old Testament, New Testament, men are accountable for their sins. That's the, that's the whole issue. So Jeremiah's calling was to declare the wrath of God to all the nations, and the cup of wrath was the first image that he uses to describe the judgment that he's sending upon these nations. So again, you picture a cup of wrath. This was a common image of suffering. It was a common image of judgment as given by both psalmist and prophet. Take, for example, Psalm 60, verse 3. Psalm 60, verse 3. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. Wow. You've made us drink the wine of confusion. So don't think that anywhere throughout the, the, the scriptures, there, there are a couple of places we don't want to go through that, but for the most part, whenever we're dealing with a cup and wine, we're dealing <laughs> with some pretty heavy stuff. Psalm 75, verse 8. Let's look at that. Psalm 75, verse 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. And the wine is red. It is fully mixed. And he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. So these aren't, these aren't good pictures. These aren't good images. When we're dealing with a cup of wrath. The cup of wrath and the fury of God. Against all these nations of wickedness. And in the midst of their wickedness. That's the psalmist. Now, when we, when we talk about the prophets, uh, you know, we've already touched upon Jeremiah, but go back to Isaiah 29, verse 9. Isaiah 29, verse 9, it says, Pause and wonder, blind yourselves and be blind. They are drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with intoxicating drink. So even there, it, it gives the explanation that this is all figurative, but nonetheless, it is an image to show that God means business about bringing judgment to the nations. Isaiah 51 verse 7 says, Awake, awake, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of His fury. So now, they have already drunk of this cup, and God is telling them to wake up. And He says, You have drunk at the hand of the Lord the cup of His fury, you have drunk the dregs of the cup of trembling, and drained it out. So you have to think about the extent of this judgment. You have to realize that this is not a slap in the hand. When we start getting to the cup and the image of the cup and the, the other images that we're going to see tonight, God means business, you see. God means business. Verse 16 of our text, Jeremiah 25, verse 16, is a clear reference to Babylon because of its brutal conquest of all the nations as we see in one verse. One verse near the end of Jeremiah's prophecy. Go all the way to Jeremiah 51. And that, I say one verse. It is one verse, but, but it's, I'm going to read two of them. <laughs> because the first verse really is just the, uh, the build-up, uh, you know, the context to, the, to verse 7. But verse 6 says, Flee from the midst of Babylon, and everyone save his life. Do not be cut off in her iniquity, for this is the time of the Lord's vengeance. He shall recompense her. Now notice verse 7. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunk. The nations drank her wine, therefore the nations are deranged. So you see the influence of Babylon on the other nations. Therefore the judgment coming not only upon Babylon, but the nations.
even the nations that were that were conquered are nations who have drunk of their wrath. Now, and, and that's the whole thing. Babylon being a, a we, we've talked about how Babylon is a is a servant to the Lord in the sense that He has used Babylon to bring judgment upon His own people, to bring judgment or chastisement and discipline upon the children of Judah. But this was the extent, as, as we said, the extent of their sin was to carry it to that extreme that they made the nations to drink that wine. And the nations are now deranged, you know, following that, that example of, of the progress or progression of, of inebriation. So Jeremiah, in obedience to God's command, you see, Jeremiah, in obedience to God's command, proclaimed the coming judgment to the nations that are mentioned here. Let's look at verses 17 through 26. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink. Now, of course, you have to remember, this is, some, some, this is figurative. He may be seeing this in a vision, but it is how he is presenting this to these nations that we'll, we'll be concerned about in just a moment. So, I, I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord has sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah. Notice he begins with his own people. The cup of the fury of the wrath of God. His own people have to drink it first. Please keep that in mind. It's kings, it's princes to make them a desolation. In other words, he is going to make Israel desolate. He's going to make Judah desolate. He's going to make them an astonishment. Because people are going to say, we thought they had, you know, we thought they had it all together with their God. We thought their God was going to love them and protect them all this, all this time. And, and now they're an astonishment to people because they disobeyed God. Really put his... His thumb down on them. They're an astonishment, a hissing. In other words, a, a curse as it is this day. But then notice the progression of the other nations. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, his servants, his princes, and all his people. All the mixed multitude and all the kings of the land of Uz. I don't want to say Uz because it sounds too much like Oz. I don't want you to think, you know, we're talking about the wizard. Uz was, of course, the land from where Abraham came. Ur, well, he came from Ur, actually, Ur of the Chaldees. But this, this is almost, you know, very similar. The king of the land of, of the Philistines, namely Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, and the remnant of Ashdod, Edom, Moab, and the people of Ammon, all the kings of Tyre, all the kings of, of Sidon, the kings of the coastlands which are across the sea, Dedan, Tima, Buz, and all who are in the farthest corners. All the kings of Arabia, all the kings of the mixed multitude who dwell in, in the desert. All the kings of Zimri, all the kings of Elam, and all the kings of the Medes. We're going to talk about all this, by the way, in just a moment. All the kings of the north, far and near, one, one with another. And all the kingdoms of the world. So, we're, we're talking about just you know, practically what the world was to them at that time. But keep that in mind, because this prophecy is going to extend a long way all the kingdoms of the world which are on the face of the earth that pretty much wraps it up also it says the king of Shishak shall drink after them let me just say right immediately the king of Shishak Shishak is a code name for Babylon and so it it brings it all back to Babylon but first of all consider that Jeremiah could not have possibly delivered this proclamation personally to every nation mentioned uh, he wouldn't have had time to go to every nation. In most cases, he probably would not have had the opportunity to go in and, and speak to any of the kings or princes directly. So you have to consider that. His proclamation was more than likely given to envoys or merchants from those nations who were in Jerusalem. Jerusalem uh, was open to all nations coming from all directions. And there were probably always envoys coming you know, to try to make treaties and try to do one thing or another to help themselves and, and whatnot. We, we know that Judah tried to make treaties with a lot of people, a lot of nations, which God didn't want them to because he wanted them to trust him. But they went ahead and did it anyway. But nonetheless, this is how it was probably done, that they were already there in Jerusalem. And in some way or some shape or form, he is able then to present uh, this this message to these nations. And, and by the way, we're actually told that he does that 
in chapter 27. If you look at verses 2 and 3 for just a moment, Jeremiah 27, just go a page or two over. It says, Thus says the Lord to me, Make for yourselves bonds and yokes, and put them on your neck. This is a kind of a living picture that He's going to give the people. And He says, And send them to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the Ammonites, the king of Tyre, the king of Sidon. And notice, by the hand of the messengers who come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. So that, that's, that's already given to us how this particular prophecy is being extended to the kings that he's mentioned in Jeremiah 25 and all the nations. They're all there, so in some way he has gathered them, he is able to give them this message. So that answers that particular part of the question. Now secondly, the list of nations provides a clear picture of the extent of God's frightening judgment to come. It's terrifying judgment to come is seen very clearly in all that is mentioned here. A judgment that foretells of a universal judgment that is yet to come beyond our own time. So it brings to mind again what we've talked about in the book of Isaiah when we studied it. That there is near fulfillments and far fulfillments that, that every prophecy is going to contain. One prophecy is going to be filled, uh, fulfilled near the time it is given. But that same prophecy will be seen much later on. It is kind of a foretelling of something that's happening at the end of time. And this is something that we have to consider in Jeremiah 25. But if you remember now, as we read there in, in the first couple of verses of, of uh, well, verse 18. Judgment begins first in the house of God. Judgment begins first with God's people. He doesn't go and he doesn't go and attack all these other nations first and then comes back to them. He goes right straight to his own people first. Why? Think about why. Think about the fact that he loved them first. He called them first. He, he, he called them to himself first. He, he made himself available to them, known to them, known by them. And he gave them commandments. And he said, follow these commandments and I will bless you. Disobey these commandments and, and, and forsake them and I will curse you. This is part of what we've been studying throughout the first 24 chapters of, of the book of Jeremiah. It's always come up. The book of Deuteronomy, the second telling of the law, kept coming up. And it was something that is affecting the very people there at that time that Jeremiah is giving the prophecy. Judgment begins first in God's house. Judah and Jerusalem would be the first to drink of God's wrath because they had been so highly privileged, you see. They had been so highly privileged by God and yet they forsook the Lord who loved them. What a sad story that is. What a sad thing it is. When God makes Himself known to us. God makes Himself available to us. God makes Himself uh, everything that we need from Him. And He says, love me, do, do what I call you to do. I was talking about Amos and reading chapters 1 and 2. Please do that. But, but in Amos chapter 3, verse 2, listen to what he says here. He says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. When he talks about the judgments of the other nations, he comes to his own people and he says to them, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. In other words, I, you know, everybody I've created, I mean, I've made, and they become nations, but you're the ones I know. And then he says, Therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. Because they disobeyed him, they forsook the Lord, they forsook the law, they forsook his love. And he says, I will punish you for your iniquities. You turn to Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3. Where Malachi uh, giving forth the prophecy of the Lord. He says, behold, I, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? For He's like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. In other words, He's going to come among His people, but He's going to come and there's going to be some sense of purification, some sense of cleansing that's going to have to take place. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi or Levi and, pur and purge them as gold and silver. Which, of course, is, you know, this is a, in a sense a good thing because when you purge gold and silver, what are you doing? You're purging the gold and silver of all of the, uh, of, uh, all of the uh, impurities 
so that what is left is pure gold, pure silver, which is in fact a, a, a sign or, or an image or, as, as you will, a, a type of, of, of what we are supposed to be cleansed by the blood of Christ. But he says, and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord. When that happens, you see, when the purging comes, when the cleansing comes, as in the days of old, as in former years, so they had been through it before, but now what has, ha- what has happened? And I will come near you uh, for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers. Now I want you to notice, he's still talking about Israel. He's still talking about his people. But what has risen up in the midst of Israel? Sorcerers, he says. I'll be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, against those who turn away an alien. Because they do not fear me, says the Lord. So he's having to come and deal with people who have forsaken the Lord as their God and as their king and as their master and as their uh, protector and whatnot. And they just stop fearing the Lord. So he comes to them. But is this the case only in the Old Testament? What does Peter say in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17? Peter says, For the time has come for judgment to begin in the, at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? You see, if it begins with us, what, what, what is going to be the you know the the punishment for those who, who don't uh, who don't believe. So it begins with us. But but we have to understand that because of what Christ has done for us, we have opportunities to go to the Lord, time and again. We're told, confess your sins. Because if you confess your sins, He's faithful and just to forgive you your sins, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. We have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. The man Christ Jesus. He's our lawyer. He's the lawyer before us. And so, and so you know, when, when, we're, when we're having to face that purification process, and by the way, you know, when we, when we get to heaven, there's going to be a purification process. We're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, which is totally different than standing before the white, great white throne judgment of God, because only believers will stand before the before the uh, uh, the throne of of, uh, of Christ. But unbelievers will have to stand before the great judgment of God, before the white throne judgment of God. So we stand there, of course. You know, this is the time of our purification. Why? Because, you see, what is pure is, is going to last. Paul talks about it in, in, in the books of Corinthians. He talks about it when he, when he says, you know, that, uh, um, you know, there's gold, silver, precious jewels, wood, hay, and stubble. When it's taken through the fire, what remains? Well, only the gold and the silver and the precious jewels. The, 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 the things and the works in our lives that we've done... Because when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we're, we're going to be judged for the things we've done, both good and bad. The bad will be burned away and the good will remain as believers. But, you know, again, the great white throne judgment is, is the, you know, that's, that's the judgment of, of the wicked and the unbeliever. So when you think about these things, God is, 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 is coming to prepare us for that, that great day. And it's going to come. The judgment will begin at the house of God. But if it begins with us first, what's going to be the end for those who don't believe? So we need to stay focused and stay believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, loving the Lord, serving the Lord, and trusting in His strength. Then we get to, then we get to these nations that are all mentioned. So He goes to Jerusalem first, and, he, and, and to Israel, and to Judah. But then He mentions Egypt. So I want, to, I want to go through all of these nations, not everyone individually, but Egypt, it says, first of all. Why Egypt? Well, first of all, because... Egypt gave some feeble assistance to Judah. There was some kind of an alliance that we're trying to make. But in that feeble assistance, it caused, it prompted Judah to rebel against Babylon. And uh, so Egypt was next to be judged. They caused Israel to go, uh, or Judah to go against Babylon. Well, 
Babylon came as God's <laughs> vessel of judgment. And so Egypt gets judged for that. And certainly a whole other, host of other things. And then it mentions all the mixed multitude. That's an interesting thought because if you read through the scriptures, you'll find that phrase mixed multitude. In some translations it says uh, mingled people. But the mixed multitude were those who just mixed from various nations. So they, you know, they really didn't have a whole lot of, uh, of uh, purity in the sense of their own national uh, uh, sense of, 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 uh, of belonging to anything. So they were just a mixed multitude of people. And uh, they were going to be judged. The land of Uz we've mentioned, which is possibly uh, in, in the area of northern uh, Arabia. And then the land of the Philistines. Now, the reason I'm, I'm mentioning, mentioning these at this point, we don't have to go into what judgments, we already know the judgments coming to them. But I'm mentioning them in groups because I want you to see where they are. I want you to see where these nations are. Uz, northern Arabia. Land of the Philistines was west of Judah on the shores of the Mediterranean southwest of, of Judah. And there's certain groups mentioned. Ashkelon, or cities mentioned. Ashkelon, Gaza, Ekron, Ashdod. Any of heard, have you heard of any of those recently in the news? Gaza? If you listen carefully to some of the attacks that are going into Israel, you, met, you hear the names Ashkelon and Ashdod are mentioned as well. But these were, of course, at that time, part of, of, of the, the Philistines. So that's still around. See, that's, that's the point I'm trying to make. These, these, these people are still around. And then there's Edom, Moab, and Ammon. You, you just follow there in that passage between verses 18 down to verse 26. Edom, Moab, and Ammon. You, you, you found that there in your, in your scriptures? You see them? You just, just, you know, make me feel good. Tell me you see them. All right. Edom, Moab, and Ammon. Now they're listed from south to north. And you'll find these nations are just east of Judah. What we know today as being Jordan and Syria. Jordan and Syria. All this whole section. On the other side of the Jordan River, the other side of the Dead Sea. Those of you who have been to Israel have looked over to that area from, uh, from uh, the Dead Sea in the lower region there of Israel. Then there's Tyre side and the coastlands. Go now to the other side, back, back to the west side, but now you're going up, up to the northern area. Tyre side and the coastlands. That's north of Judah and the Mediterranean coast. What's over there now? Lebanon. You see Tyre side and you realize that's the area of Lebanon. And then the next ones mentioned are Dedan, Tema, and Buz. And along with those are the farthest corners, it says, which we don't know understand fully so we try to keep them together with the ones that are mentioned and Dedan, Tema and Buz are in the northern part of the Arabian Peninsula you can look at one even in your I was looking at a few Bibles today to look at the maps and most of the maps in your Bibles will have some mention of the Babylonian Empire and it will show you know the Fertile Crescent and and you but you'll see Arabia and you'll see where some of these places are. Well, guess what? They're still there, aren't they? And they're still inhabited by people who, at this point, are really enemies of Israel. So, so you get to the point of where we're going with this. And then look at uh, the fact. The next ones are mentioned are Arabia and the Bedouins. Arabia and the Bedouins, the, the, the desert people. You see, the kings as well as the nomads. Do we not have that today in in, in Arabia? Saudi Arabia is made up of, 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 the, of the house of Saud, which is the uh, reason why it's called Saudi Arabia. And, and those, are, those are the kings, the princes, the ones who own all the oil, the ones who you know, dress a certain way, and have a certain uh, you know, belief, uh, Wahhabist uh, uh, Muslims and, and, and all. But then it, it also has a lot of uh, just desert nomads. As a matter of fact, the, the nomads are the Bedouins. When you're driving into, they're even in Judah. You're driving into, uh, into Jerusalem on, in the bus. And you see all of these in the desert. You see all of these little camps all around the, the, the area. And those are Bedouins. And they're still around. And they're, they're being mentioned here. 
And then there's Zimri, Elam, and Media. These are countries east of the Tigris River. River. So if you go east in the area of Iraq, uh, and heading as if to say Iran, actually, because Media and Persia, of course, Persia is Iran, the nation of Iran. So this is, this is the extent of, of, of those nations that are being mentioned for the sake of, of being judged. But then he goes into the whole earth, he says. Any other nations conquered by Babylon, near and far? And then it ends with the king of Sheshach, who is also going to drink of this cup. Another name for Babylon, and I said earlier, because Babylon would meet its match with Medo-Persia. The, 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 the nation that would, that would overrun Babylon which you can read in Daniel chapter 5, are the Medo-Persians. And, uh, and think about this. Because of the, the word Shishak here, the code name, as, as we said earlier, the code name for Babylon is also mentioned in Jeremiah 51, verse 41. So if you go back to Jeremiah 51, look at verse 41, and notice what it says. Oh, how Shishak is taken, the prophecy of its being conquered. Oh, how Sheshach is taken. Oh, how the praise of the whole earth is seized. How Babylon has become desolate among the nations. And so Babylon is going to meet its, its demise. It's going to meet its, uh, 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 you know, it's, it's fate in the sense, if you want to call it that, you know, of, of, uh, of the nations. And the certainty in all of this, now that we've gone through that list, the certainty in all of this is that the nations that drink from the cup of God's wrath will fall. That's the certainty. The certainty in all of this is that the nations that drink from the cup of God's wrath will fall. And let's not forget that those nations mentioned, for the most part, are still around. So what does that say? That is saying that this particular prophecy is definitely one that has a near fulfillment to every one of those nations, but it will also have a far fulfillment when we look at the end time when we look at all the nations of the world today and realize that there is still the same kind of struggle that was taking place then. These are all nations that do not want Israel to exist. Every one of those mentioned. Just about, just about every one mentioned. Israel has some very thin ties with Egypt. And they have some thin ties with, with, Jew, uh, with the Jordan, but not with very many others. In fact, Egypt and Jordan in 1967 and before, all the way back to 1947, were ready to do what? Or 48, I should say. Were ready to do what? They were ready to cast Israel and the people of Israel into the sea. From the very day in May of 1948 and Israel was declared a, a nation at the United Nations from that very day they have been fighting for their existence and it has been the hand of God that has protected them through all of this Israel is the key to understanding the fact that God's word is true Israel is the key to understanding the, the, the fact that God's word is inerrant, that it is true, and that it is right. If there was no Israel, then we would have to wonder. But there is an Israel. And the prophecies that have taken place when we studied in the book of Isaiah, the prophecies of Israel becoming a nation, becoming fruitful as it has, even the thin strip, which is not all of what God had given them, just that thin strip that we call Israel today, a nation that is no bigger than the state of New Jersey, has seen God's hand time and again protecting it because God knows that there's a day coming when the nations of the world will gather against this one little strip of land and its people, the people that are there now. 
from 1948 into some wars that happened in the 50s to 1967, the, 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 that the Six-Day War of 1967, to the Yom Kippur War of 1973. And ever since then, in all of the skirmishes and all of the terrorism that has been going on, and yes, by the way, even though our president administration doesn't want to use the word terrorism or terrorist, that's what they are, that's what's happening. Israel is still in the hands of his God, of, of their God. And we, that's why we're called to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And the only peace that Jerusalem will ever see is when Jesus enters into Jerusalem through that eastern gate, which will open up when he comes. But that's what we need to pray for. And that's what we need to trust is going to happen. And everything that we see happening today is leading to that time. There is a far fulfillment that is coming. But all the nations that are mentioned here in this passage, they're still here for the most part. And they will be here for that day when they will be judged with the cup of God's wrath. And just think of the book of Revelation. There are certain judgments that are called the, the cup judgments. So, we won't go into that tonight. We are going to go to Revelation in just a little bit. I better hurry up so I don't keep you all here till 11 or 12 tonight. I promise that. Let's look on at verse 27 now as we go on. Therefore you shall say to them, God says to Jeremiah, Therefore you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. And notice that he's calling himself the God of Israel. He's not calling himself just the God of Judah. The God of Israel. So he's talking about his whole people. He says, Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Boy, that's great, isn't it? Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Don't raise your hands, but some of us remember those days. Well, okay. But the progression is right. That's what I'm trying to say. Drink, be drunk, and vomit. Fall and rise no more. That's the whole point, is the next phrase. Fall and rise no more. Because of the sword which I will send among you. See, he's not really really make them drink. What is the, what is the drunk, drunkenness? What is the drink? It's God's judgment. It's the sword. And then it says, And it shall be, if they refuse to take the cup from your hand to drink, then you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord of hosts, You shall certainly drink. In other words, God's going to make you drink this cup. For behold, I begin to bring calamity on the city, which is called by my name. So he goes back to the understanding of Jerusalem having to face this wrath first. I begin to bring calamity on the city, which is called by my name. And should you be utterly unpunished? In other words, if you see what I'm doing to my people, don't think that you're getting away. You shall not be unpunished, for I will call for a sword on all the inhabitants of the earth, says the Lord. So that progressive inebriation is described, drink, be drunk, and vomit, emphasizes the extent of judgment that would flow from the cup of the wrath of God. Those refusing the cup would be forced to drink from it. The Lord would certainly make them partake of it. And if God would bring disaster on His own city because of its sin, how could these heathen nations hope to go unpunished? They certainly would not perish by drinking, but by the sword. By the sword. And then in Jeremiah 30, uh, 25, verses 30 and 33, uh, through verse 33, Therefore prophesy against them all these words and say to them, And I want you to notice now the other images. We've, we've talked about the cup. Now there's some other images coming up. The Lord will roar from on high. What does that give you a picture of? The lion's roar. The Lord will roar from on high and utter His voice from His holy habitation. He will roar mightily against his fold. So that's another picture of a lion coming down against what? Against um, the sheep. He will give a shout as those who tread grapes. There's the, the, the treading of the wine press. That's another picture. Uh, against all the inhabitants of the earth. A noise will come to the ends of the earth. For the Lord has a controversy with the nations. He will plead his case with all flesh. What is that? It's a lawsuit. The image of a lawsuit. He's taking him to court. He will give those who are wicked to the sword, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, disaster shall go forth from nation to nation, and a great whirlwind shall be raised up from the farthest parts of the earth. What is that? It's a mighty storm. And at that day the slain of the Lord shall be from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. 
They shall become refuse on the ground. What's that? It's another picture. It's a picture of refuse. Rubbish. Literally, the word is dung. I don't have to say more, do I? You all know what dung is. I talk about it a lot. I don't like to, but I do. Manure. Got the picture? Fertilizer. That's a nice word. All right. They shall not be lamented or gathered or buried. They shall become refuse. Look at all of the pictures. A lion. Wine press. Lawsuit. Mighty storm. Becoming rubbish. So take note of the other images that God uses in his declaration of judgment. We'll see two more images in the last verses of the chapter. God will roar with judgment when he visits the nations. He will roar, just like a lion. The Lord also, it says in Joel, verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 16, it says, The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for his people and the strength of the children of Israel. The Lord will be a shelter for his people. Now see, that's, that's an encouragement here, isn't it? The Lord's going to roar against the nations, but his people will be protected, the strength of the children of Israel. Amos chapter 1 verse 2. I, I mentioned Amos as a study for you to read about God's judgment on the nations. And he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Then there's the wine press. Another familiar metaphor for judgment is the wine press. We study one in Isaiah 63, verses 1 through 3. Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Bozrah? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the wine press? I have trodden the wine press alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. Going back to Joel chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Judgment comes upon wickedness. And it's, it is the picture of that wine press, the pressing down of the grapes. Call them the grapes of wrath, as it were. And we could do the same with the lawsuit and the storm and the refuse. We can go and find all of these, you know, verses. We just don't have time. But the Lord continues His graphic images of judgment in the last portion of this chapter. So let's read verses 34 through 38. He says, Wail, shepherds, and cry. When He says shepherds here, He's talking about the leaders of the nations, whether civil or religious, but leaders anyway of the people. He says, Wail, shepherds, and cry. Roll about in the ashes, you leaders of the flock. For the day of your slaughter and your dispersions are fulfilled. You shall fall like a precious vessel. Literally, it says you shall fall and become broken pottery. Broken pottery. A vessel that was one time of, of use, now it's broken it is of no use. That's the other picture. Judgment. Broken pottery. And the shepherds will have no way to flee, nor the leaders of the flock to escape. In other words, the judgment will come. The voice of the cry of the shepherds, a voice of the cry of the shepherds, and a wailing of the leaders to the flock will be heard. For the Lord has plundered their pasture, and the peaceful dwellings are cut down because of the fierce anger of the Lord. He has left his lair like the lion. There's a mention of the lion again. For their land is desolate because of the fierceness of the oppressor, and because of his fierce anger. So the other picture, the last picture is a slaughtered flock. A slaughtered flock. Broken pottery and a slaughtered flock. So the message is to the civil and the religious leaders, the shepherds. They're not just to, to put ashes on their heads. You know, one of the signs of grief was, was to throw ashes upon their head. But here he says, no, you're not going to throw ashes on your head. You're going to roll in the ashes. And the rolling in the ashes was a deeper sign of grief. A deeper sign of grief and mourning because their time of judgment was at hand. They weren't just having, uh, you know, grief for, for others. They were grieving for themselves. You know, when you grieve for yourself, you can grieve a lot more than when you're grieving for someone else. Sometimes that happens. 
And like a fierce lion, God would leap upon those unfaithful shepherds and destroy them, and there would be no escape. There is, no, there is a need here to see the near and the far fulfillment again, simply because the language that is used describes a greater tribulation to befall nations to come. The language that is used describes a greater tribulation to befall the nations to come. So how do we see this tied into what is to come? Turn to Revelation chapter 14. And we're almost done. Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, verses 8 through 10. You, You may want to read the whole chapter itself tonight as well. So add that to your reading of Amos. Okay? Revelation 14, verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Notice who's mentioned. Babylon. Babylon is fallen. Is fallen. That's not a phone, is it? Is that a phone? No, a phone over there. I don't appreciate that. Hope you put it away. Babylon has fallen. It's fallen. That great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. And then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships a beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength in the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. We see some of the pictures that we've seen already in Jeremiah. They're they're here. And if that isn't enough, if you go down to verses 19 and 20, it says, So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city. And the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. And again, just, just to give you the picture of the tying in of the language in Jeremiah as to what is to yet take place uh, to the nations that are against God. And we could say this nations against Israel, but it's nations against God. And and we have to we have to consider the reality of the times in which we live, that even in a nation that was founded on the principles of the Bible, a nation that was founded on Judeo Christian ethics and principles, our country is today turning into a country that is highly secular humanistic which means we don't want to hear any mention of God there shouldn't be a God let's take the word God out of you know in God we trust in our coinage you know let's take God out of the schools that's already happened let's take prayer out of the schools that's already happened we're in danger folks as a nation to fall right into the very same place where all these other nations are going to be judged for their hatred against God. But may I say to you, as we get to close here, that God knows how to rescue the godly while punishing the wicked. And this is our encouragement. Turn to Second Peter chapter 2. And we're going to close with this passage and then a passage in 1 Thessalonians. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 9. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness, to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, One of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, 
Condemn them to destruction. Making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. Isn't that interesting? Verse 6. Turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemn them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward live ungodly. And we understand what kind of ungodliness that was. We understand. And delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless, their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows, notice verse 9, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. The Lord knows. If he knows how to bring judgment upon the people who deserve that judgment, and he knows how to how to deliver the godly out of the temptations. But understand this. Who's deserving? Or maybe I should put it this way. Who isn't deserving of that kind of judgment? The Bible says that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us. That's what we deserved. And yet Jesus Christ came to this earth, took upon himself flesh, became a man like us, and lived among us and yet without sin, so that he would be that righteous, pure Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. That whoever would call upon his name for mercy would receive that mercy and eternal life. Because Jesus would say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, trusts in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And lastly, I want to leave you with 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 11. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 9 through 11. For God did not appoint us to wrath. Speaking of the believer in Jesus Christ, the one who believes with all of his heart, has confessed with his mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in his heart that he's risen from the dead. God did not appoint us to wrath. Didn't appoint us to the cup of wrath. Didn't appoint us to these particular judgments. He did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him, and therefore comfort each other and edify one another, just as you also are doing. I wanted to finish with that because I want you to realize that God has provided a way a way to escape those kinds of judgment. It's provided through His Son, through the love of His Son. And so He is able to say, I haven't appointed you to that. I've appointed you to life. And therefore, if you love me and believe in me, then live for me. In the light of Christ, in the light of the glory of Christ, in the love of Christ, And carrying on the royal law of love. There is a law we are to follow. James mentions it in his letter. It is the royal law of love. So, for those who probably wonder, I thought God was a God of love. He is. As a matter of fact, when he created the heavens and the earth and he made man in his own image, that was a, that was a statement of love. And think of the only two people that were on the earth at the time when he says, you know, I'm going to give you one law. You, you have free reign of all of the garden that I've made before you. But of one tree, 
I want you to stay away. Why? Because when you eat of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I don't want you to die. So he warned them. But they ate of the tree. And here we are, faced with this struggle of life and death, because death came into the world that day. God wants us to be people of life. And it takes, it takes a heart that just says, Lord, I'm, I'm just going to live for you. I need your help because I'm human. But you've loved me to give me every opportunity. And so let's take that opportunity to live for Christ. Let's pray.